Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Warning, this podcast contains explicit language and details acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Innocent people framed, innocent people hurt, Innocent people killed. Power, corruption, lies. You've heard about many incidents that have happened at the hands of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputy gangs throughout this series. These stories continue to this day, as does my reporting on them. But we are at the end of this series for now. I wanted to take a moment and thank you so very much for tuning in. For this last episode, I wanted to talk about why the issues inside the LA County Sheriff's Department are allowed to fester and to take time and to take questions from you, our listeners. LA is not safe! This is a tradition of violence, a history of deputy gangs inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So, a question that I'll go ahead and try to answer as many of you ask this in some shape or form. What's being done about the issue of deputy gangs? With so much protection and power, maybe you're thinking, isn't there some sort of governmental body that can nullify some of these deputy gangs' actions? Well, yes and no. Here's Brian K. Williams again, describing what the Civilian Oversight Commission does. What are some of the responsibilities of the commission? Well, when you look at our charter, it says to increase the transparency of the LA County Sheriff's Department. It says that we are to provide recommendations on bettering the department. And it says that we are supposed to serve as a bridge between the community and the department. And so if we use those as our guide stars, everything else falls below that. So it may be a horrific shooting has occurred, and we've had, unfortunately, way too many of those during my six-year tenure here with the commission. And we will hold a public hearing or a community meeting so that we can get information out there to the community about what has happened and who is involved and what the facts are. It may be us taking a look at some of their policies. Body-worn cameras, for example, is a great example. We really pushed for that to get the department. It was the largest department in the nation that didn't have body-worn cameras to get those in place 
to get additional cameras within the jail system, to look at their use of force policies. And of course, now we're looking at the deputy gang issues. So that's what we do. That's what we try to do. But we're a work in progress. Do you feel like the commission has enough resources to be able to do its job effectively? We get by with what we have. We could certainly use more resources, more staff, more specialized staff. We could absolutely use that. But we're not going to sit here and say we can't do what we have to do because of the size of our staff or the resources that we have. So I think we punch above our weight at this point, honestly, with the staff that we have. We have such a hardworking staff who look at a myriad of issues that come our direction every day, literally every day, will receive complaints or information from members of the community. What powers of enforcement does the Civilian Oversight Commission have? We're an advisory commission. We could tell the Sheriff's Department to jump 10 feet high, and they can just simply say no, and there's no consequence. Our two biggest tools, really, one is, of course, the power of the bully pulpit. We attract a lot of media and have a very large following, so we're able to help shape sort of the public discourse about what's going on in the Sheriff's Department. Secondly, several years ago, the people in our community passed a measure which gave us the ability to subpoena folks, and then the state legislature also gave us that ability. And then the Board of Supervisors also gave us that ability. So we have this tripart ability to subpoena people and documents to help us do our job. The Sheriff's Department has resisted that on any number of occasions, so it has made our job a little more difficult, but that really is the only power that we have. When this interview was recorded, the Civilian Oversight Commission had issued multiple subpoenas to then-Sheriff Alex Villanueva and under-Sheriff Timothy Murakami, which they ignored. What is the Civilian Oversight Commission's strategy to make the sheriff and the under-sheriff comply? Well, I mean, our first strategy, of course, is the legal strategy. We're fighting this, and we're grateful for county council's assistance in fighting this issue in court. And we think it's really important for him to testify under oath, which is what the subpoena would require, on deputy gangs and other issues as well. I think half of our commission are lawyers and former judges in the whole bit. This is not our first rodeo. From the way they tell it, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department cares about ending deputy gangs, but they also disparage the agencies tasked with investigating the issue. Here's current Assistant Sheriff Holly Francisco at a press conference in June 2022. As you all know and have heard, the disingenuous and disheartening comments made by Sean Kennedy from the Civilian Oversight Commission last week that the Sheriff and the Sheriff's Department has done nothing to address their wording, deputy gangs. This statement is furthest from the truth. The information we'll provide is factual information on what we have done and hope, and our hope is that this allows us to continue building trust with the communities we serve and to counter the false narrative that, that has been broadcasted by the OIG and COC. October 2021, public reform legislation AB 958 was signed into law. Sheriff Villanueva was a proud sponsor of this legislation. Mike Gibson, a California assemblyman, authored the bill. Before becoming a politician, Gibson was a police officer with the Maywood Police Department. The department was shut down in 2010 after the city lost its insurance policy for being too high of a liability. That was due to many factors, a big one being an excessive number of complaints against officers in the department. Those complaints included police violence, false arrests, and rogue cops. I actually sponsored AB 958. 
AB 958 was modeled after the Sheriff's Department Deputy Click Policy. AB 958 is a law that prohibits involvement in police gangs and makes departments tell other law enforcement agencies if someone was fired for being in one. Our department policy was already consistent with this new law since our policy was implemented in February 2020. Former Sheriff Alex Villanueva says that all deputies had to watch a video about the policy. I want to provide clarity so every employee unmistakably understands. Any employee who aligns with a clique or subgroup which engages in any form of misconduct will be held accountable. I do not want you joining these alleged cliques anymore, period. This is a zero tolerance issue. So those who may have joined these cliques in the past, times have changed and you need to change with them. We cannot go back in time and undo those decisions. But moving forward, we want to better align ourselves with the public's expectations. This is what changing the culture of our organization looks like. But what the department says and what the department does are two very different things. When Sheriff Villanueva took office, he immediately transferred the captain and the East LA executive team out of East LA station. This was the first time I've seen this done in my 32 and a half years. The sheriff had concern for the leadership and knew a strong command staff needed to be put in place. Throughout 2019, 36 personnel were transferred out of the East LA station. I mentioned in episode 11 that Captain Ernie Chavez admitted under oath that even though Villanueva touted 36 transfers from the East LA station as discipline, that never happened. This does not include the four employees that were discharged and 22 employees that received suspensions for the Kennedy Hall investigation. Those deputies, as we've covered, we're all linked to being in a deputy gang. And right now, as of this recording, they're waiting for the county to decide whether they can get their jobs back. The system keeps deputy gangs protected. Several of you wanted to know why these deputies are not being prosecuted. I wanted to ask District Attorney George Gascon myself on this podcast, but unfortunately, he ultimately declined to sit down with me. I was able to get a statement from the district attorney's office, which I've asked an actor to read. We take alleged membership in deputy gangs very seriously. As currently written, the law prohibits membership in law enforcement gangs and requires law enforcement to disclose the termination of an officer for participation in a law enforcement gang to a law enforcement agency conducting a pre-employment background investigation on such an officer. However, the law does not make membership alone a criminal offense. See Penal Code Section 13670. If it is determined that a particular law enforcement officer who is a member of a law enforcement gang has committed a specific criminal offense beyond membership that can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, this office will file charges. The DA's office is saying that being a deputy gang member is not a crime. They will only file charges if they believe they can prove that deputy gang members have committed crimes. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Time is a luxury for us, especially if you're a mom. That's why we need a skincare routine that's easy, fast, and gives us results. Plus, what if your products had thousands of five-star reviews, were natural and affordable? Well, say hello to Dime Beauty. Dime Beauty is clean, high-end skincare that is affordable, and it really works. Not sure where to start? I highly recommend the Work System. It's everything you need in one powerful package. Take out the guesswork with a proven routine that includes a gentle yet effective cleanser, a super skin toner, two incredible serums, and two luxurious moisturizers. See what everyone is raving about. From serum sets to the always sold out retinol alternative TBT cream, you'll find your perfect skincare match. Dime has over 2 million happy customers, and their product reviews are literally five stars. Love your skin again. Go to dimebeautyco.com for 20% off with code GETDIME. That's dimebeautyco.com, code GETDIME for 20% off. Whether the DA charges or not, people can sue cops for damages in civil court. Qualified immunity is a legal principle that basically makes it very difficult to successfully sue a cop in federal court. It gives them immunity from a civil suit. They can only be held accountable if a court previously ruled that whatever the officer did was previously deemed unconstitutional. Here's attorney John Burton, who took on the Vikings in the early 90s. They've made this horrific doctrine of, of qualified immunity that is just a nightmare for us. And that just keeps getting worse and worse. So how has qualified immunity changed the landscape of lawsuits against police? So the idea is there's something called the Federal Civil Rights Act, which is Section 1983. So I consider myself a 1983 lawyer. That's, you know, if I'm in, in, among lawyers, that's what I would call myself. And Section 1983, which was part of Reconstruction, was actually part of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, is a beautifully simple statute. Any person who's acting under color of law, of state law, which would include any kind of police officer, prison guard, who deprives another person of a constitutional right can be sued in federal court for money damages. Very simple. And the Supreme Court really didn't kind of recognize it for different reasons until a famous case in the early 60s called Monroe versus Pape. And then right away they said, but in another case shortly after that, but if the officer is acting in good faith, that's a defense. And that good faith defense kind of evolved into this thing called qualified immunity, which says, well, if the officer's conduct did not violate clearly established law, then that's a defense and you can't sue them. So they keep making that more and more extreme. The late Associate Justice Antonin Scalia 
said, well, you've got to approach this on a certain level of specificity. So everybody knows that excessive force violates clearly established law. And there's guidelines for what excessive force is, more force than is objectively reasonable under the circumstances. So that should be the end of it. But they say, oh, but the force that the officer used here under these particular circumstances, how would the officer know that that was going to be excessive? Do you have a case, a precedent that shows that? Well, that's absurd because very few cases wind up being precedents. And every case is like a snowflake. I mean, they're all different. There's patterns we see over and over again, but you can't say, you know, this is the same case. So now, whenever we file lawsuits, we're subject to the fact that, well, where's your case that says what this officer did was held to be unconstitutional? Because without that, then they're entitled to qualified immunity. This means that if you're going to file a civil rights case against a cop in federal court, they can say they didn't know the force they were using was excessive, and a judge can find in their favor. Unless there is a case exactly like yours, which creates a precedent. If they make a motion that they're entitled to qualified immunity, and the judge says, well, I don't agree, I think the law was clearly established enough for them to know that this was illegal, then they can appeal that. And they can appeal it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has not been shy about reversing lower courts that have said there's no qualified immunity. It also moves the decision-making on what's reasonable conduct from the jury, where the Constitution says it goes, because we have a right to a jury trial if, in civil cases under the, the Seventh Amendment, to judges. There's nothing comparable to this in any other area of the law. I mean, try committing a crime and somebody saying, oh, well, you know, it wasn't clearly established that committing this crime exactly this way was, you know, illegal. You know, we have to go look at the cases and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's preposterous. So it's cast a dark shadow over our entire practice. It just keeps growing. And with these people that are currently in the Supreme Court, it's just going to get worse. If you decide to pursue a civil case in state court instead, that comes with its own challenges, like the Public Safety Officers' Bill of Rights Act, or POBAR. Here's Brian K. Williams, Executive Director of the Civilian Oversight Commission. Police Officer Bill of Rights, for example, which prohibits us from getting certain information about certain deputies of, as to what's going on, internal policies of the department. Here's an example. So we will sometimes get a question or a complaint from a member of the community and they'll say, hey, my loved one was involved in this use of force, whether it may be a shooting or they died in custody. And we'll make an inquiry as to, okay, who were the deputies involved in this? Was there any discipline imposed? What did the disciplinary process look like? Well, we can never get to what that disciplinary process or what the discipline was that was done on a particular deputy because it's protected by the Police Officer Bill of Rights. So we just can't get that information. So that just begins all sorts of consternation between the community and the department, and it breeds even additional mistrust because we can't let them know what happened in a particular disciplinary process. There, we have asked on occasion for the names of deputies who've been involved in shootings, and, and I will say the department has given us those names uh, as of late. 
but it wasn't always like that. I think it shows the power of the unions across the state in terms of how they influence legislative issues involving police officers. There are some tools in place to uncover some of the information obscured by Pobar, like the pitches motion. Attorney John Sweeney, who uncovered the executioner's gang, explains. Pitches motions, which allowed you to get the background of a police officer if he has done something similar to uh, your type of case. If you can tie a nexus between your type of case, a case of violence, racial animus or something, and this prior record, you're supposed to be able to get that to use to show that he has propensities to doing this. Some quick background on the Pitches motion. It's named after Peter Pitches, a former sheriff who also has a detention center in North LA County named after him. Back in the 70s, four deputies pulled over a man named Cesar Echeverria. Cesar ended up in the ICU. The deputies claimed that Cesar had assaulted them, even though they had no injuries. Cesar was charged with four felony counts of assaulting the deputies. His attorney asked for their records in search of past instances of excessive force. Sheriff Pitches declined to release the records. That led to Cesar's attorney to ask a court to subpoena them. Pitches petitioned to stop the subpoena. The issue went to the California Supreme Court, who sided with Cesar and his attorney unanimously. None of the justices agreed with Pitches. But not all Pitches motions are granted. The motion needs to show good cause, and situations aren't always clear-cut. Furthermore, a cop-sympathetic judge could just side with the department and choose not to release anything. And on top of all of this, there are unions representing cops. Police unions, like the Association of Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs, are less a union and more a political machine. For a while, we, we, we were talking about this police reform and trying to stop things like these deputy gangs or stop, like, some of the corruption that we have. However, the police unions are very powerful lobbyists. They're very powerful political voices. I think oftentimes it is. it might be a concept that people agree with, but they are politically afraid to take it on. ALADS takes part in two political action committees, the California Law and Order Independent Expenditure Committee and the Association for Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs PAC. They raise and spend millions to influence Angelinos, who then shape the city. They spent $1.5 million in 2018 to help Alex Villanueva get elected to sheriff in the first place, allowing deputy gangs to thrive. In 2020, they spent nearly a million dollars attempting to defeat District Attorney George Gascon, who ran on criminal justice reform. ALADS does actual union stuff, like negotiating contracts, protecting their own, and also defending members when they violate policies or break the law. Throughout the years, they've stopped reform, protected deputies' personnel records from going public, and shunned financial transparency. There's inherent conflict in how Los Angeles County is represented in court as well. The county has its own attorneys, referred to as county counsel, who advise government agencies like the Board of Supervisors and various departments on litigation. They also represent the Sheriff's Department. I asked Sean Kennedy, the chair of the Civilian Oversight Commission, why that's allowed to happen. I frankly don't know why. I, I don't think it's right. I actually wrote a memo to the county council saying, I don't think that the COC can achieve its mission without its own counsel. 
helping us achieve our legal goals instead of thwarting them. So I think it's debatable, but the response was the sheriffs, the COC, you name it, whatever county agency, we are all part of one county government, Los Angeles County. So there can't be a conflict of interest because you, the COC, you're just part of the board of supervisors. You're an agent of the board of supervisors. And by representing the board of supervisors, there's no conflict because ultimately they're in charge of everything. Now, I don't agree with that. I did not volunteer to become a member of the commission to be an agent of the board of supervisors or to represent the county government structure in any way. I became a member in hopes that this commission would reduce the number of shootings of young black and brown men in L.A. County. And uh, so if I am an agent of the Board of Supervisors, I'm a bad one because, and I believe this is true of the entire commission, none of us view ourselves as trying to represent or be an agent of the board. We're all focused on trying to be an independent voice for transparency, collaboration, and accountability. In 2021, L.A. County commissioned the Rand Institute, a nonprofit global policy think tank, to study deputy gangs. One problem with that, though, the study did not call the gangs gangs. Instead, the report was titled, Understanding Subgroups Within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. In this survey, Rand asked 1,608 deputies and supervisors if they'd been asked to be in deputy gangs. Nearly 257 had been asked, with one-fourth of them saying they'd been asked within the last five years. But no one from Rand asked if any of these people surveyed were gang members themselves. Then-Sheriff Alex Villanueva held a press conference to discuss the findings. He was less than enthused. The fact is we've been dealing with this issue about uh, subgroups and cliques for a long, long time. And every single one of my predecessors has kicked the can down the road, said it either didn't exist or did nothing really about it. But some people, particularly politicians across the street, are saying, well, 50 years, by golly, it's on your dime, you're going to have to fix it or else. So I think it's unrealistic and a political opportunism on steroids. Look what Rolling Stone said. Executioners, reapers, and banditos, gangs of sheriff's deputies are wrecking havoc in LA. Wow. You know what it is? It's a problem of perception, but not reality. And that is a hard, cold fact about this issue. The hard, cold facts are subgroups exist in every large organization, particularly paramilitary organizations, be it the US military, be it in firefighting organizations, fire departments, police departments. Hilda Solis, this is her statement from the RAND report. And I'm troubled by the fact that she's troubled. RAND Institute's study supports a decades-long troubling history of deputy gangs in LA County Sheriff's Department. It does not support it. She bought for a study, she got her study, and she's using that as a launching pad to continue her campaign and that of the Board of Supervisors to discredit, defund, and delegitimize the Sheriff's Department for their political gain at the expense of public safety. 
I don't know if you noticed the last little bit of venom Villanueva had stored up for Hilda Solis. She's on the board of supervisors and has been a long critic of his regime. Villanueva and previous sheriffs were long resistant to oversight and transparency, leading to the creation of Measure A, co-authored by Holly Mitchell and Hilda Solis. The measure basically allows the board to remove a sitting sheriff if they had just cause. That includes violation of laws related to sheriff's duties, repeated neglect of the sheriff's duties, misusing public funds or properties, willful falsification of documents, or obstruction of an investigation into the department's conduct. The measure passed late last year. And to cap off the question of what's being done about deputy gangs, deputy gang hearings. Here's Sean Kennedy and Brian K. Williams again. We want to shed a light on an issue that has plagued this department for decades, right? No one can sit here and say that those deputy gangs do not exist. We know that they exist. And so we're doing everything we can to raise the issue, to shed some light on these gangs, to identify those who are engaged in gangs, and to set some policies and procedures to finally rid the department of these gangs and or the actions of these gangs, right? It has been a long time coming. The department has been sued over and over and over and over again because of rogue deputies doing things that they shouldn't be doing. It's had an incredibly horrific impact on the community and on the lives of select members of our communities. And we just have to stand up and say enough is enough. Let's finally address this issue. Let's acknowledge this issue. And let's put policies and procedures in place to make sure that not only we address the current issue, but that they don't grow in the future and ultimately we get rid of this issue from the LA County Sheriff's Department. It's a work in progress. Our first thing is we just wanted to put out there the evidence because the sheriff is always saying, there's no such thing as a deputy gang. It's a unicorn. It's a problem of perception. It's not a reality. So the first thing we wanted to do is we wanted to take it more seriously factually than prior commissions. And we've had seven hearings. We're going to at least have an eighth. And so just getting the information out there for activists, scholars, government officials. And that testimony has proved fruitful. As mentioned in episode 10, these hearings have shed light on the inner workings of deputy gangs. I have seen that uh, individuals have been retaliated against publicly without any fear, and I am actually not external to this department. I'm internal, so I think I'm within closer reach of any type of retaliation, whether it be a uh, putting a case on me, um, uh, initiating an investigation on me for whatever reason that might pop up, and uh, yeah, definitely for my family. Even from deputy gang members themselves. For uh, purposes of uh, candor, uh, do you have a tattoo? Yes, sir. And uh, what is the uh, tattoo associated with? It is uh, associated with a group of deputies from Compton Station. The name is the Gladiators. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Time is a luxury for us, especially if you're a mom. That's why we need a skincare routine that's easy, fast, and gives us results. Plus, what if your products had thousands of five-star reviews? Were natural and affordable? Well, say hello to Dime Beauty. Dime Beauty is clean, high-end skincare that is affordable, and it really works. Not sure where to start? I highly recommend the Work System. It's everything you need in one powerful package. Take out the guesswork with a proven routine that includes a gentle yet effective cleanser, a super skin toner, two incredible serums, and two luxurious moisturizers. See what everyone is raving about. From serum sets to the always sold out retinol alternative TBT cream, you'll find your perfect skincare match. Dime has over 2 million happy customers, and their product reviews are literally five stars. Love your skin again. Go to dimebeautyco.com for 20% off with code GETDIME. That's Dime beautyco.com code get dime for 20% off we receive tons of questions from listeners some of them i don't have an answer for like why so many police officers have violent histories or what a future without policing would look like there are some people out there like Miriam Kaba who has written a lot on that last subject and I encourage you to read her books. But there are several questions we got that I'm going to try my best to answer. The first one is from Travis who asks, have you uncovered any evidence that this thing has moved beyond California? A lot of information about gang activity in police and sheriff's departments is still obscured and many gangs that exist are not labeled as such, despite their organized violence. But some stuff has made its way to the public. Most of the police gangs we know about are in California. Ben Camacho at Knock LA discovered a gang called Met within the Santa Ana Police Department. John Peltz at Knock LA says the LAPD has had a gang-like environment for decades. In the 90s, there was a scandal called Rampart, where over 70 officers were implicated in things like shooting civilians. They would give each other plaques for shootings, covering up crimes, implicating civilians in things that were being done by officers. And it cost the city over $125 million in settlements. And during that scandal, there were officers who were tattooed with grinning skulls on their bodies. At the time, it didn't seem like they were, you know, claiming there were gang members necessarily in the department, although a lot of critics were saying that, one, this was sort of aligning with gang activity, and two, a lot of the Rampart officers were also hanging out and with alleged gang members at the time, and they were implicated in doing activities with them. He's currently investigating a potential gang. So in late 2021 on social media, someone had posted a photograph of this menacing sort of Jolly Roger pirate flag that was being flown over the 77th Street Division station. And after it was posted on social media, I submitted some public records requests that asked for any photos of the flag, any documentation of the image, and the image is specifically a, a skull and crossbones wearing a crown, uh, sort of smiling. 
and it's in front of the number 77 to indicate the division. And I think later in early January, I finally got a response from the department that was very interesting. It basically said they couldn't give me any of that documentation because the incident was under internal investigation. I wrote this article about the flag, and while I was report- reporting that article, I had found some more sort of indicators of what the meaning behind the flag was and other challenge coins. Challenge coins are these sort of things that are inspired by like military culture that are passed around police departments that like sort of celebrate different divisions or iconography. And they're typically obviously very pro-police and prideful and especially like pro like police response to violence. They saw themselves as the vanguard of civility or whatnot. About two months later, I received a photo from the same neighborhood of this officer, Jason Vias, who is wearing a badge of the logo on his uniform at a restaurant, at a diner in the daytime. And I posted the image online after uh, talking to the witness and verifying it. And after I did that, it sort of you know took off. After I posted the second photo, the department gave me a response from Captain Stacy Spell, who is in charge of like the media duties at the department. He gave me a lengthy response about the uniform. Basically, said that like the department understands the imagery is very offensive to some people. He made some vague suggestion that he was the officer that I that was in the photo was being disciplined. That they had now were you know enforcing some policies to make sure that no one displays this insignia or imagery, and that the department itself has no relation to it. And so anyone who would display it, you know, would be out of policy if they displayed it. Officers with the Vallejo Police Department were accused of bending the badges of department members who participated in shootings in July of 2020. The police chief said he launched an independent, third-party investigation into the matter. There has also been reporting that has uncovered gangs in departments across the United States. A study conducted by researchers at Northwestern University and the Invisible Institute identified over 100 possible so-called crews of officers in the Chicago Police Department. Vice News has reported that criminal cop gangs account for less than 4% of Chicago's police force, but make up a quarter of all complaints, settlements, and shootings. Julia Opel asks, From what little I know, insurance for police has been offered as a tool to shift the financial cost of police violence and corruption off of the taxpayer, but I'm curious. So currently, cops are largely shielded from personal liability and lawsuits. In state and federal court, L.A. County picks up most of the bills associated with attorney and settlement costs. And when they don't, police unions or independent fundraisers by cops make up the difference. Police liability insurance offers police even more protection. If a cop is sued and they have a policy, the insurance company would handle the legal costs and any settlement the officer is found to be responsible for paying. The bright side, though, is that with liability insurance, less taxpayer money will pay for police misconduct. Still, a recent national study found that the employing public entity paid 99.98% of damage awards in police misconduct cases. So we have yet to see what effect police liability insurance has. I spoke with Ambrose Brooks S., the campaign's coordinator at Dignity and Power Now, which is a grassroots organization advocating for abolition and police accountability. They tell us more about settlements and litigation fees and where taxpayer money comes into the picture. The Board of Supervisors 
has to approve every settlement for the sheriff's department. So these elected officials know exactly how much money every year is going to sheriff settlements. In fact, there's a county council report that comes out every year that breaks down the litigation fees and expenses. In 2020 to 2021, out of the 14 costliest settlements for the county, eight of them were for the the sheriff's department. And out of all of the LA County departments, the sheriff's department had the costliest litigation expenses at approximately $59 million for that year. And the next costliest county department's litigation fees were $11 million. I've seen the community activated showing up at the Board of Supervisors to voice one absolute disgust at how much money is going to pay for the settlements and then also recommendations for As I said before, maybe that settlement money should come from sheriff's salaries and pensions, and also where that money could be better spent. Lawyers are really immune at this point to the emotional impact and to what families are going through. It's like the same group of attorneys who are defending the sheriff's department. Here's a question from Rad in Portland. How much overlap have you found in white supremacist groups and deputy gangs? The origins of policing has its roots in slave patrols, which is just what it sounds like. So policing is inextricably linked to white supremacy. If that seems too far back for you, just look at the enforcement of Jim Crow laws and, you know, recent statistics. A recent Guardian article revealed that police killed at least 1,176 people in the United States last year. That's over three people a day. Nearly 100 every month. Black people were 24% of victims, while just 13% of the population. Their data also found that Black and Latino residents are searched at a higher rate than other races. We found extensive overlap between white supremacist groups and the deputy gangs everywhere, from LASD deputies' sworn testimonies to the actions of former Sheriff Alex Villanueva himself. Let's start with Villanueva, who has repeatedly refused to investigate or root out deputy gangs, including neo-Nazi gangs. He's called Black deputies racial slurs, unraveled anti-racist policing reforms, and complained about media coverage of Black people. His campaign manager has a Twitter account where he publishes blatantly racist jokes, and he quickly promoted other deputies who advocated for racial profiling. He has ties to Elsa Aldeguer, who is known to associate with Holocaust supporters, three percenters, and Proud Boys, and once bragged that she organized the largest anti-Muslim rally ever in California. Under Villanueva, white supremacy has ranged from incidents like Deputy Samuel Aldama saying in sworn testimony that he has ill feelings toward African Americans— to the continued existence of openly neo-Nazi gangs. Let's take the IPA gang, for example. The name of the gang itself is an acronym for Inclusive Province Achaia, and Achaia stands for a Klansman, I am. 
Three employees of LASD were found on a list of people belonging to the Oath Keepers, the largest militant alt-right organization in the U.S. A member of the Civilian Oversight Commission stated that she was concerned but not surprised, saying, quote, We have a problem with white supremacist gangs. The tie between the LASD and the Oath Keepers is well-supported. There are photos of Oath Keepers paraphernalia in the South L.A. station. There was even an LASD deputy confirmed to be participating in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. The list goes on, but one thing is clear. There are direct links between the LASD and white supremacist organizations, and it doesn't seem like anything is being done to change this. Sarah Kobayashi asks, with all the preponderance of evidence that gangs exist and are a massive problem for law enforcement, what else is being done to hold them to account? What are their employers doing, politicians, communities, the media, etc.? Or are they just seen as the cost of doing business? Maybe just an alternative arm of the legal system? Although there is clear evidence that deputy gangs exist, the LASD refuses to take any internal action. Instead, promoting gang members and outside actors do not have enough power and reach to create any significant change. It's key to note that higher-ranking members of the LASD are instrumental to the existence of deputy gangs. Sean Kennedy is the chair of the Civilian Oversight Commission. I wanted to play some clips from my interview with him to help explain why deputies haven't been penalized. Here's what Sean had to say about Villanueva's inaction towards deputy gangs. We have been trying to get Sheriff Villanueva under oath answering questions about deputy gangs for a very long time. And he has invented every excuse or reason in the book for not doing so, and has used his county-funded lawyers to help him, and he's been very successful at it. Villanueva, former undersheriff Timothy Murakami, and others have used legal tactics to guard themselves from any sort of cooperation with the COC. The other thing is, regarding Sheriff Villanueva and undersheriff Murakami, they have been especially aggressive in their legal tactics. We were on the eve of having full briefing on a contempt hearing when Undersheriff Murakami filed some kind of claim to recuse the judge. Then we went before a new judge, and that judge set the hearing off into December. The COC demanded that we try to have it accelerated and Apparently, the new judge wouldn't do that. So the judges claim their calendars are very full. And so every time a tactic is employed by the sheriff, which is his right, it results in more and more delays. It is very troubling, and you have every right to ask, like, what's going on? So another reason nothing has been done is that, unfortunately, the system is slow and bureaucratic and not equipped to take quick, direct action on urgent issues like LASD gangs. Villanueva and others in leadership positions have continued to prevent any investigation or insight into the deputy gangs. They banned Inspector General Max Huntsman from all LASD facilities when he tried to look into the gangs and harassed and intimidated journalists reporting on the issue, like myself, instead of doing anything about it. 
So because of this impediment from the top, it's very difficult for anyone within LASD to do anything to stop deputy gangs. To make matters worse, many deputies are part of unions that will fight subpoenas placed on members and protect them from being fired. Deputies that try to resist the gangs from the inside are often threatened and harassed. Their tires are slashed, and dead rats are left by their vehicles. They are intimidated into not speaking out, even fearing for their lives. Families of victims of deputy gang violence are often the ones most determined to speak out, but even they are constantly harassed by deputies. Some, understandably fearing for their own safety and family members' safety, decide to stay quiet. Some are pushed to sign NDAs, promising they won't discuss what happened. Others, like the family of Anthony Vargas, struggle to expose deputies who have committed murder, but face intimidation and multi-year-long wait times for court cases and investigations to wrap up. There has been a lot of recent media coverage on LASD gangs from me and other journalists like Eileen Chekmedian and Kate Cagle, but because of systemic dysfunction and racism, inefficient government regulatory systems, and the dismissal and resistance of LASD leadership, there is only a limited amount media coverage can do in affecting immediate and concrete change. David of Augusta, Georgia says, are these people not screened for sociopathy? The short answer, they are given a psychological exam, but this does not prevent them from inflicting violence onto residents once they are officially a deputy. To go a little deeper into the screening and application process, there are several steps that an applicant must go through in order to become a deputy sheriff. First, there are some basic requirements regarding citizenship, education, physical condition, vision, hearing, and a couple of other things. Then you have to submit an application, then get a score of at least 70% on an exam which tests things like data interpretation, reasoning, spelling, and vocabulary. Next is an interview, where you'll be assessed on your experience, motivation, interpersonal skills, and community involvement. Finally, after a background check, you'll go through a physical fitness test and get a medical and psychological evaluation. The psychological evaluation isn't a screening for mental health illnesses. Rather, it is usually composed of a self-interview, multiple-choice questions, and an interview with a psychologist. Candidates are asked about topics like history of drug use, personal biases, integrity, impulse control, appropriate attitudes about sexuality, and honesty. Given the stories you've heard about rampant racism, sexual harassment, fistfights at department events, and lying about ghost guns, it seems this examination has failed to screen out deputy gang members, to say the least. One instance where this system went wrong was in Alameda in Northern California. Just a couple months ago, in September 2022, 47 deputies were stripped of their guns and arrest powers because an audit revealed they had failed their psychological exams. This was 10% of their entire force, and they will still receive their pay and benefits. The internal audit was triggered by a deputy's murder of a couple in their home earlier in September. A spokesperson for the Alameda County Sheriff's Department had said earlier that the deputy charged with the killing had passed his psychological test. Numerous other sources, however, said he had failed, but was still hired and given weapons. The spokesperson said the department overlooked the, quote, not suitable 
results in candidates' psychological exams because they desperately needed to hire more deputies, and that the whole incident was, quote, not as bad as it sounds. If there are people in the Alameda County Sheriff's Department willing to overlook not suitable results on psychological evaluations, chances are the same oversight errors occur in other counties, especially when key players are known for other instances of corruption, violence, gang activity, and mismanagement. Sometimes it can even be advantageous for them. Outside of psychological screenings, law enforcement systems are known to screen out candidates who have IQs that are too high. In 2000, a man in Connecticut sued because he was rejected from a job as a police officer given that he scored 33 points on a test for which the department only accepts candidates who score 20 to 27. The score on the test translates to IQ. The police department's rationale was that officers with IQs above a certain level will get bored with the job and leave. While this may be true, it also has the effect of putting people with lower IQs in positions of power with deadly weapons. Although IQ is in no way associated with mental illnesses like sociopathy, this case demonstrates how police can select for who they want in departments with their own preferences and desires in mind, rather than the public's. Stephen Elias wants to know, have any notable sheriff's gang members moved into LAPD? I'm not sure about LAPD, but a few deputy gang members have moved on to other departments, and some even run them. One such deputy is John Chapman, who is a self-admitted, tattooed Viking. He's currently an undersheriff with the Clark County Sheriff's Department in Washington and spent some time with the Vancouver, Washington Police Department, too. But before that, between 1983 and 1994, Chapman was an LASD deputy sheriff. In his 11-year career with LASD, Chapman was part of a group of deputies that arrested, imprisoned, and beat Lloyd Polk for over 17 days. We talked about this incident in episode two. Chapman was also part of a group of deputies that shot and killed then-21-year-old Hong Pyo Lee. Deputies chased Hong Pyo for 15 miles. He never got over 35 miles per hour. Once pulled over, Chapman and other deputies shot him as two Long Beach police officers stood nearby. The deputies claimed Hung Pyo reversed, making them fear for their lives. But the Long Beach police officers say they never saw the car back up. Furthermore, Hung Pyo's car was found over 100 feet in front of the spot where the shooting took place. The deputy's report stated that a shot and dying Lee was able to shift from reverse to drive and go that distance and crash. Hung Pyo's brother, Paul, told the LA Times that he didn't buy the deputy's versions of things. He said, quote, It doesn't really make sense. You got eight bullets in your body and you can do that? My dad can't understand why there were bruises on my brother's face. There's many other instances of Chapman allegedly violating the Fourth Amendment, harming people, holding people at gunpoint, and falsifying warrants and reports. And again, he's now helping to run the Clark County Sheriff's Department. Other sheriff's deputies mentioned in this series include Victor Clay, an alleged Grim Reaper we discussed in Episode 3, who is now chief of the Harvard University Police Department. We reached out to Clay for comment, and he declined. And then there's Robert Johnson, who former Deputy Randy Higgins says is a grim reaper. He is now the sheriff of Santa Clara County. Johnson denies that he is a member of the gang. Olivia asks, 
Are these officers all men? Are there women officers in these gangs? And last, these officers' families, are they still with these gang members? The vast majority of officers and deputy gangs are men. Some gangs, such as the Banditos, don't even allow women or black people to become full members. However, some women still become associates. Some examples are Sergeant Angelica Patty Estrada, who was called the Pink Hand and was regarded as the brain of the Banditos' operations. Carrie Robles Placentia was also affiliated with the Banditos. She was trained by gang member Vincent Moran. She has also been photographed holding paraphernalia with the Fort Apache logo. Of course, many women resist the deputy gangs they find themselves surrounded by when they begin their jobs as deputies. They might face inappropriate touching, requests for sexual favors, and other harassment. If they refuse, they might even be given extra work, move to a different station for no fault of their own, threaten both verbally and with objects like dead rats, and further harassed. Regarding the spouses of male deputy gang members, some stay with them for various reasons, including a lack of knowledge about their husband's activities, belief in shared racist assumptions and glorification of deputy gangs, or simply providing for their families and themselves. Some spouses do get divorced, particularly because the values that deputy gang members hold translate to the home as well. I talked to Hisham Alibab, the Violence Prevention Program Manager with Contra Costa Health Services, about why cops tend to be more violent. Why is there a higher propensity to be physically abusive? Well, I think that what I hear on the street is that a lot of people that may be feeling insecurity or frustration with their life circumstances may be drawn to positions that imbue them with authority. Alibab says those great benefits play into why some people may stick with an abusive spouse. These spouses are more or less like survivors, right? They're either survivors or they're witnesses to stuff. It's undeniable that a lot of these spouses will be in a position where their partner is the main breadwinner. They're the sole source of income, they probably get a wonderful pension, great benefits, a zero copay for dental and vision and medical. And so a partner with insurance will sort of gain a leverage over their partner who may not have as good of a job. And so often, systems in place that are supposed to help people experiencing domestic violence and abuse can end up doing more harm, especially when people working within them allow them to. In our interview, Alibab spoke candidly about the police officers he speaks to and what they say about people they interact with. I know a police officer who really doesn't like homeless people with children. He tends to vilify those parents. He thinks that those parents are doing something wrong and that it's a crime and that they should be locked up and all this other stuff. He did not say if he ever challenged that cop on those beliefs. And even after hearing that kind of prejudice consistently from police, Alibab still believes that cops are the best answer to these problems. Police are usually like the best funded public system that victims and other people will run into. They're not preventers. They're not funded to prevent bad things from happening. And if police aren't there to prevent crime, what are they doing? Janelle from Southern California asks, 
Can you explain station numbers in relation to a station tattoo? Like, what does a station number signify? And how is a station number assigned to a police department? Every station has an identifying number used during radio communications, which is synonymous with the station's identity. It's used internally among the employees and officers. When gangs are created, these station numbers are incorporated into the tattoo as a form of identification and pride. There's an understanding that if they all have the same tattoo and shed blood together, they're bonded as brothers forever. A question from Ellen. What is life like for non-gang member deputies? Lieutenant Sidra Sherrod Strong opened up about life inside LASD outside of a deputy gang in episode 5. Here's more from her from a documentary she put together about her ongoing issues with the department under former Sheriff Alex Villanueva. I joined the military at a young age, and I've been with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department for 26 years. I was floored by the vile bitterness of the incompetent leaders. Not real leaders, but pretentious, greedy staff members interested only in climbing to the next rank or covering up their incompetence with lies. Ellen also asks... What is the size of the non-gang population, or is it basically everyone? A former sheriff's department member testified to the Civilian Oversight Commission that about 15 to 20 percent of deputies are participating in deputy gangs. Some current deputies I've spoken to say that everyone inside the department is aware of them. Here's a question from Reva Singh. Now that Robert Luna is the new sheriff, Are you any more hopeful about LASD's desire to deal with these gangs? Here's Ambrose from Dignity and Power Now again. It's like the expectations are incredibly low. And we have to think about the fact that Alex Villanueva ran on an anti-corruption platform as well. Luna's been in office for, what, one month at this point? And there hasn't been anything radical done yet. It would have been cool if something, some beyond symbolic gesture was made in the first month that shows his commitment to rooting out deputy gangs. And But the reality of the deputy gangs is like they're going to exist with or without Robert Luna. And there are already policies and procedures within the sheriff's department that supposedly outlaw gangs. They've been able to thrive and fester within the department in the face of these policies. I remember Robert Luna saying something that, like, I'm going to look through the organizational components of the department and look through the policies and see whether or not things need to change. Like, it will take a lot, I think, to even give hope, to give even the smallest bit of hope. Marlene asks, is Biden aware and can we pressure him to do something before the election? Congresswoman Maxine Waters has sent several letters to the Department of Justice demanding an investigation. She hasn't heard back yet. Finally, the million-dollar question from David Williams. Hi, Ms. Castle. I guess my question is, why isn't this a federal investigation? Why haven't the feds taken over the department via consent decree? David, the short answer is, I have no idea. If you are a federal agent listening to this, please get back to me. You've been listening to A Tradition of Violence, a history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Thank you so much. Hosted and executive produced by Cerise Castle. Music by Yellow Hill and Steels. If you're enjoying A Tradition of Violence, please give us a five-star rating and leave a written review. For breaking news and updates on deputy gangs, follow at LASD Gangs on social media. To support Cerise's reporting and for exclusive bonus content, subscribe to the LASD Gangs Patreon. This is 
for the hood. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 